Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight we continue our story, The Blanched Soldier, by author Conan Doyle. Such was the problem which my visitor laid before me. It presented, as the astute reader will have already perceived, few difficulties in its solution, for a very limited choice of alternatives must get to the root of the matter. Still, elementary as it was, there were points of interest and novelty about it, which may excuse my placing it upon record. I now proceeded, using my familiar method of logical analysis to narrow down the possible solutions. The servants, I asked. How many were in the house? To the best of my belief, there were only the old butler and his wife. They seemed to live in the simplest fashion. There was no servant, then, in the detached house? None, unless the little man with the beard acted as such. He seemed, however, to be quite a superior person. Had you any indication that food was conveyed from one house to the other? Now that you mention it, I did see old Ralph carrying a basket down the garden walk and going in the direction of the house. The idea of food did not occur to me at the moment. Did you make any local inquiries? Yes, I did. I spoke to the station master and also to the innkeeper in the village. I simply asked if they knew anything of my old comrade, Godfrey Emsworth. Both of them assured me that he had gone for a voyage around the world. He had come home, and then it almost at once started off again. The story was evidently universally accepted. You said nothing of your suspicions. Nothing. That was very wise. The matter should certainly be inquired into. I will go back with you to Tuxbury Old Park. Today? It happened that at the moment I was clearing up the case which my friend Watson has described as that of the Abbey School in which the Duke of Greyminster was so deeply involved. I had also a commission from the Sultan of Turkey which called for immediate action, as political consequences of the gravest kind might arise from its neglect. Therefore, it was not until the beginning of the next week, as my diary records, that I was able to start forth on my mission to Bedfordshire in company with Mr. James M. Dodd. As we drove to Euston, we picked up a grave and taciturn gentleman of iron-gray aspect with whom I had made the necessary arrangements. This is an old friend, said I to Dodd. It is possible that his presence may be entirely unnecessary, and on the other hand, it may be essential. It is not necessary at the present stage to go further into the matter. The narratives of Watson have accustomed the reader, no doubt, to the fact that I do not waste words or disclose my thoughts while the case is actually under consideration. Dodd seemed surprised, but nothing more was said, and the three of us continued our journey together. In the train, I asked Dodd one more question, which I wished our companion to hear. You say that you saw your friend's face quite clearly at the window, so clearly that you are sure of his identity? I have no doubt about it whatsoever. His nose was pressed against the glass. 
The lamplight shone full upon him. It could not have been someone resembling him. Oh, no, it was he. But you say he was changed. Only in color. His face was... How shall I describe it? It was of a fish belly whiteness. It was bleached. Was it equally pale all over? I think not. It was his brow which I saw so clearly as it was pressed against the window. Did you call to him? I was too startled and horrified for the moment. Then I pursued him as I have told you, but without result. My case was practically complete, and there was only one small incident needed to round it off. When, after a considerable drive, we arrived at the strange old rambling house which my client had described, it was Ralph, the elderly butler, who opened the door. I had requisitioned the carriage for the day and had asked my elderly friend to remain within it unless we should summon him. Ralph, a little wrinkled old fellow, was in the conventional costume of black coat and pepper and salt trousers with only one curious variant. He wore brown leather gloves, which at sight of us he instantly shuffled off, laying them down on the hall table as we passed in. I have, as my friend Watson may have remarked, an abnormally acute set of senses, and a faint but incisive scent was apparent. It seemed to center on the hall table. I turned, placed my hat there, knocked it off, stooped to pick it up, and contrived to bring my nose within the foot of the gloves. Yes, it was undoubtedly from them that the curious, starry odor was oozing. I passed on into the study with my case complete. Alas, that I should have to show my hand so when I tell my own story. It was by concealing such links in the chain that Watson was enabled to produce his meretricious finales. Colonel Emsworth was not in his room, but he came quickly enough on receipt of Ralph's message. We heard his quick, heavy step in the passage. The doors flung open, and he rushed in with bristling beard and twisted features, a terrible an old man as ever I had seen. He held our cards in his hand, and he tore them up and stamped on the fragments. Have I not told you, you infernal busybody, that you are warned off the premises? Never dare to show your face here again. If you enter again without my leave, I shall be within my rights if I use violence. I'll shoot you. By God, I will. As to you, sir, turning upon me, I extend the same warning to you. I am familiar with your ignoble profession, but you must take your reputed talents to some other field. There is no opening for them here. I cannot leave here, said my client firmly, until I hear from Godfrey's own lips that he is under no restraint. Our involuntary host rang the bell. Ralph, he said. Telephone down to the county police and ask the inspector to send up two constables. Tell him there are burglars in the house. One moment, said I. You must be aware, Mr. Dodd, that Colonel Emsworth is within his rights, and we have no legal status within his house. On the other hand, he should recognize that your action is prompted entirely by solicitude for his son. I venture to hope that if I were allowed to have five minutes' conversation with Colonel Emsworth, I could certainly alter his view of the matter. I am not so easily altered, said the old soldier. Ralph, do what I tell you. What the devil are you waiting for? Ring up the police! 
Nothing of the sort, I said, putting my back to the door. Any police interference would bring about the very catastrophe which you dread. I took out my notebook and scribbled one word upon a loose sheet. That, said I, as I handed it to Colonel Emsworth, is what has brought us here. He stared at the writing with a face from which every expression, save amazement, had vanished. How do you know? he gasped, sitting down heavily in his chair. It's my business to know things. That is my trade. He sat in deep thought, his gaunt hand tugging at his straggling beard. Then he made a gesture of resignation. Well, if you wish to see Godfrey, you shall. It is no doing of mine, but you have forced my hand. Ralph, tell Mr. Godfrey and Mr. Kent that in five minutes we shall be with them. At the end of that time, we passed down the garden path and found ourselves in front of the mystery house at the end. A small, bearded man stood at the door with a look of considerable astonishment upon his face. This is very sudden, Colonel Limsworth, said he. This will disarrange all our plans. I can't help it, Mr. Kent. Our hands have been forced. Can Mr. Godfrey see us? Yes, he's waiting inside. He turned and led us into a large, plainly furnished front room. A man was standing with his back to the fire, and at the sight of them my client sprang forward with outstretched hands. Why, Godfrey, old man, this is fine. But the other waved him back. Don't touch me, Jimmy. Keep your distance. Yes, you may well stare. I don't quite look the smart Lance Corporal Emsworth, the B Squadron, do I? His appearance was certainly extraordinary. One could see that he had indeed been a handsome man with clear-cut features, sunburned by an African sun. But mottled in patches over this darker surface were curious whitish patches which had bleached his skin. That's why I don't court visitors, said he. I don't mind you, Jimmy, but I could have done without your friend. I suppose there is some good reason for it, but you have me at a disadvantage. I wanted to be sure all was well with you, Godfrey. I saw you that night when you looked into my window, and I could not let the matter rest till I had cleared things up. Old Ralph told me you were there, and I couldn't help taking a peep at you. I hoped you would not have seen me, and I had to run to my burrow when I heard the window go up. But what in heaven's sake is the matter? Well, it's not a long story to tell, said he, lighting a cigarette. You remember that morning fight at Buffalo Spruit, outside Pretoria, on the uh, Eastern Railway line? You heard I was hit. Yes, I heard that, but I never got particulars. Three of us got separated from the others. It was very broken country, you may remember. There was Simpson, the fellow we called Baldy Simpson, and Anderson and I. We were clearing Brother Bear, but he lay low and got the three of us. The other two were killed. I got an elephant bullet through my shoulder. I stuck onto my horse, however, and he galloped several miles before I fainted and rolled off the saddle. When I came to myself, it was nightfall, and I raised myself up, feeling very weak and ill. To my surprise, there was a house close beside me, a fairly large house with a broad stoop and many windows. It was deadly cold, you remember the kind of numb cold which used to come at evening, a deadly, sickening sort of cold, 
very different from a crisp, healthy frost? Well, I was chilled to the bone, and my only hope seemed to me in reaching that house. I staggered to my feet and dragged myself along, hardly conscious of what I did. I have a dim memory of slowly ascending the steps, entering a wide open door, passing into a large room which contained several beds, and throwing myself down with a gasp of satisfaction upon one of them. It was unmade, but that troubled me not at all. I drew the clothes over my shivering body, and in a moment I was in a deep sleep. It was morning when I wakened, and it seemed to me that instead of coming out into a world of sanity, I had emerged into some sort of extraordinary nightmare. The African sun flooded through the big, curtainless windows, and every detail of the great, bare, whitewashed dormitory stood out, hard and clear. In front of me was standing a small, dwarf-like man with a large, bulbous head, who was jabbering excitedly in Dutch, waving two horrible hands which looked to me like brown sponges. Behind him stood a group of people who seemed to be intensely amused by the situation, but a chill came over me as I looked at them. Not one of them was a normal human being. Everyone was twisted or swollen or disfigured in some strange way. The laughter of these strange monstrosities was a dreadful thing to hear. It seemed that none of them could speak English, but the situation wanted clearing up, for the creature with the big head was growing furiously angry and uttering wild beast cries. He had laid his deformed hands upon me and was dragging me out of bed, regardless of the fresh flow of blood from my wound. The little monster was as strong as a bull. I don't know what he might have done to me had not an elderly man who was clearly in authority been attracted to the room by the hubbub. He said a few stern words in Dutch, and my persecutor shrank away. Then he turned upon me, gazing at me in the utmost amazement. How in the world did you come here? he asked in amazement. Wait a bit. I see that you are tired out and that wounded shoulder of yours wants looking after. I am a doctor, and I will soon have you tied up. But man alive, you are in far greater danger here than ever you were on the battlefield. You are in the leper hospital, and you have slept in a leper's bed. Need I tell you more, Jimmy? It seems that in view of the approaching battle, all these poor creatures had been evacuated the day before. Then, as the British advanced, they had been brought back by this, their medical superintendent, who assured me that, though he believed he was immune to the disease, he was nonetheless never have dared to do what I had done. He put me in a private room, treated me kindly, and after a week or so, I was removed to the General Hospital of Pretoria. So there you have my tragedy. I hoped against hope, but it was not until I had reached home that the terrible signs which you see upon my face told me that I had not escaped. What was I to do? I was in this lonely house. We had two servants whom we could utterly trust. There was a house which I could live. Under pledge of secrecy, Mr. Kent, who was a surgeon, was prepared to stay with me. It seemed simple enough on those lines. The alternative... It's a dreadful one. Segregation for life among strangers with never a hope of release. But absolute secrecy was necessary, or even in this quiet countryside there would have been an outcry and I should have been dragged to my horrible doom. Even you, Jimmy, even you had to be kept in the dark. Why my father has relented, I cannot imagine. Colonel Emsworth pointed to me. 
This is a gentleman who forced my hand. He unfolded the scrap of paper on which I had written the word leprosy. It seemed to me that if he knew so much, that it was safer that he should know all. And so it was, said I. Who knows but good may come of it. I understand that only Mr. Kent has seen the patient. May I ask, sir, if you are an authority on such complaints, which are, I understand, tropical or semi-tropical in their nature? I have the ordinary knowledge of the educated medical man, he observed with some stiffness. I have no doubt, sir, that you are fully competent, but I am sure that you will agree that in such a case, a second opinion is valuable. You have avoided this, I understand, for fear that pressure should be put upon you to segregate the patient. That is so, said Colonel Emsworth. I foresaw this situation, I explained, and I have brought with me a friend whose discretion may absolutely be trusted. I was able once to do him a professional service, and he is ready to advise as a friend rather than as a specialist. His name is Sir James Saunders. The prospect of an interview with Lord Roberts would not have excited greater wonder and pleasure in a raw subaltern than was now reflected upon the face of Mr. Kent. I shall indeed be proud, he murmured. Then I will ask Sir James to step this way. He is at present in the carriage outside the door. Meanwhile, Colonel Emsworth, we may perhaps assemble in your study, where I could give the necessary explanations. And here it is that I miss my Watson. By cunning questions and ejaculations of wonder, he could elevate my simple art, which is but systematized common sense, into a prodigy. When I tell my own story, I have no such aid. And yet, I will give my process of thought, even as I gave it to my small audience, which included Godfrey's mother, in the study of Colonel Emsworth. That process, said I, starts upon the supposition that when you have eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. It may well be that several explanations remain, in which case one tries test after test until one or other of them has a convincing amount of support. We will now apply this principle to the case in point. As it was first presented to me, there were three possible explanations of the seclusion or incarceration of this gentleman in an outhouse of his father's mansion. There was the explanation that he was in hiding for a crime, or that he was mad and that they wished to avoid an asylum, or that he had some disease which caused his segregation. I could think of no other adequate solutions. These, then, had to be sifted and balanced against each other. The criminal solution would not bear inspection. No unsolved crime had been reported from that district. I was sure of that. If it were some crime not yet discovered, then clearly it would be to the interest of the family to get rid of the delinquent and send him abroad, rather than keep him concealed at home. I could see no explanation for such a line of conduct. Insanity was more plausible. The presence of the second person in the outhouse suggested a keeper. The fact that he locked the door when he came out strengthened the supposition and gave the idea of constraint. On the other hand, this constraint could not be severe, or the young man could not have got loose and come down to have a look at his friend. You will remember, Mr. Dodd, that I felt round for points 
asking you, for example, about the paper which Mr. Kent was reading. Had it been the Lancet or the British Medical Journal, it would have helped me. It is not illegal, however, to keep a lunatic upon private premises, so long as there is a qualified person in attendance and that the authorities have been duly notified. Why, then, all this desperate desire for secrecy? Once again, I could not get the theory to fit the facts. There remained the third possibility into which, rare and unlikely as it was, everything seemed to fit. Leprosy is not uncommon in South Africa. By some extraordinary chance, this youth might have contracted it. His people would be placed in a very dreadful position, since they would desire to save him from segregation. Great secrecy would be needed to prevent rumors from getting about and subsequent interference by the authorities. A devoted medical man, if sufficiently paid, would easily be found to take charge of the sufferer. There would be no reason why the latter should not be allowed freedom after dark. Bleaching of the skin is a common result of the disease. The case was a strong one, so strong that I determined to act as if it were actually proved. When on arriving here, I noticed that Ralph, who carries out the meals, had gloves, which are impregnated with disinfectants. My last doubts were removed. A single word showed you, sir, that your secret was discovered, and if I wrote rather than said it, it was to prove to you that my discretion was to be trusted. I was finishing this little analysis of the case when the door was opened and the austere figure of the great dermatologist was ushered in. But for once, his sphinx-like features had relaxed and there was a warm humanity in his eyes. He strode up to Colonel Emsworth and shook him by the hand. It is often my lot to bring ill tidings and seldom good, said he. This occasion is the more welcome. It is not leprosy. What? A well-marked case of pseudo-leprosy or ichthyosis, a scale-like affection of the skin, unsightly, obstinate, but possibly curable and certainly non-infective. Yes, Mr. Holmes, the coincidence is a remarkable one. But is it coincidence? Are there not subtle forces at work of which we know little? Are we assured that the apprehension from which this young man has no doubt suffered terribly, since his exposure to its contagion, may not produce a physical effect which simulates that which it fears? At any rate, I pledge my professional reputation. But the lady has fainted. I think that Mr. Kent had better be with her until she recovers from this joyous shock. We are always on the hunt for great stories like these to feature on the show. You can send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. If you found some value in our storytelling tonight, don't forget to show the love. There's a buy me a coffee link on every post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>